Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. The only show dedicated to exploring the commercialization of great ideas and research across deep tech and science, driven by the ambition of the people that make up Australia's unique innovation landscape. We talk to the greatest minds about what is influencing their work and their insights into the ingredients needed to bring great Australian innovation to life. Welcome to the Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, the Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. Today I'm talking to the co-founder of Evercase, Paul Levins. Welcome, Paul. Hey, James. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm sitting here in Canberra and you're sitting somewhere north of Austin, Texas, having just been at South by Southwest. I am. So have a look around and tell us, what do you see? Right now, I am in a place which is about an hour outside of Austin called Wimberley, a very quaint, attractive town. And what I'm looking at right now is the most amazing sort of Spanish villa-style house with all of the imagery that that might invoke, you know, the clay tiles, the beautiful courtyards, the river running behind it and so on. And uh, so I'm a house guest at this place and it's uh, not a bad place to be a house guest, apart from the possibility of rattlesnakes and tarantulas and scorpions. But, but we know all about that living in Australia, so, you know. All right, sounds wonderful and dangerous. So that's how we like yeah. it. All right, so a couple of things. All right, you've just been to South by Southwest. You've pitched your company or your company's product from Evercase at the South by Southwest Festival, which is a incredible honour, I suppose, but a, an amazing opportunity too. So can you step us through Evercase? What do you do? Where does it come from? And what was South by Southwest like? Yeah, so I'll talk about Evercase first. Evercase is a technology in the cold supply chain. Essentially, it keeps food and biologicals at freezing temperatures without any ice forming. So it's a little bit hard to get your head around. So if you stick something in a freezer, you leave it in there for a few hours, eventually the ice crystals start to form and live a little longer and the whole of the thing goes solid, right, from ice. And what's happening in that process is that the water molecules are lining up because of the lowering of the temperature, they're lining up, slowing down, and then phase changing into ice. And when that happens, the ice crystals puncture the cells, and that means that the moisture inside it escapes. And so um, that means that things that are particularly perishable, things like fish, berries, really delicate stuff like tofu, shrimp, you know, sorry, prawns, uh, <laughs> adapting my language for it's the, the long, being in the in the country I'm in, those things get very irreversibly damaged by the freezing process. Whatever case does is it allows you to lower that temperature and not have that effect. So no ice forms. And that means you get all the advantages of freezing without any of the disadvantages. So this takes some while for this idea to seep through. We have nine years of research that's out of the University of Hawaii is where this is uh, sprung from. It's been funded by the USDA. It was incubated at Park, which is where we found it. So the Palo Alto Research Centre? Yeah, Xerox Park, Xerox Palo Alto Research Centre, which is quite famous as the place that... Is it still owned by Xerox? Yeah. Right, okay. And there's been, I think, a number of attempts by different people to buy it, 
over the years, but it remains with Xerox. And it's very famous, right? They invented the graphical user interface. They invented the Ethernet. Just those two things are good enough, but the list goes on and on and on. And so they were the ones that incubated this and from where we spun it out. So it's got a great pedigree. And as I said, if you go onto our website, which I can supply your listeners with later, but you see this video, which is kind of unbelievable. So what happens, you put a steak as a control into a freezer along with a steak in the Evercase, which I'll explain in a moment. And out comes one is, as you would expect, you need a bandsaw to cut it, right? That's the regular freezer. And the other one is like it just went in. It's fresh and supple and no drip loss. You say, you know, when we thaw a piece of steak, you get that puddle that appears, that red bloody sort of puddle. We tend to think of that as something relating to freshness and goodness. In fact, it's the irreversible damage that's been done to the meat. And that's the texture and the heme and the moisture leaching out of the product. Okay. So I can see lots of applications all over the place, right? But particularly in exports of these kinds of agricultural goods. Look at the biologicals. It would have been handy to have these cases around when we're shipping vaccines around the world. So what are the early use cases? So we think the place where we will commercialise this the earliest and the soonest is in the food space. So we're saying that the biological applications is probably later, but we've done really viable tests on vaccines that have allowed them to remain viable. And that's sort of unheard of, right? You put a thing in, into freezing normally and it damages it. And I was only just talking today at the conference at South by Southwest to a um, person from the Defence Research Laboratory who said if we can apply this, it is a game changer to the work that we do in the lab. So the other space that you would think of would be people who've suffered some kind of injury. So I've lost my finger, I've lost my hand. At the moment, the best kind of practice for that is an esky with dry ice, right? And then it gets into all sorts of mystery world, right? Some people will say, oh, no, put it in milk. You know, oh, no, put it in just a bag of ice. The ice and the dry ice, both of those things cause freezer burn to the item. So an Evercase would not do that. Right. An Evercase would just mean that it's in a sub-zero temperature, but there's zero ice. And so all of the flexibility, all of the capability of the, the, yeah, the amputated item would remain. Okay, now let's... Uh, and then there's also blood. A blood is a possibility as well. Let me ask you about South by Southwest. How'd the pitch go for a start? But how did you come to be selected? I think there's uh, many hundreds of companies would be seeking a spot there. So how we came to be selected was like everyone else, you know, we applied. We had the good fortune of having every founder says this about their technology, right? But it really is extraordinary game-changing technology and so we had that as a big leverage point and then I think it was also just the fact that there's a bunch of different categories at South by Southwest right there's got to be able to remember them all but there'll be you know like an AI category there'll be a food and nutrition category the category we were in was innovative world categories so this in my sort of plain speaking is sort of the category for everything else but it has to have sort of some kind of global impact and so I think we were fortunate in that regard that there was a category that sort of said what technologies are out there that could have a really significant impact from a social and a commercial point of view. And uh, we were lucky enough to apply for that. I applied for it and we were lucky enough to get in. And uh, you're right, only 40 companies are chosen to pitch across those eight categories. It's five in each category. And there was, I think, well over 700 applications. So we were really delighted to be selected to pitch. 
out of that sort of competition. That's great exposure for the company. Tell me about, just quickly if you can, about South by Southwest. There's obviously a, a South by Southwest Sydney coming in 2023. Got any feedback for the organisers of that? And <laughs> what are you expecting? So I think expect a great time and to have your mind blown. So what I mean by that is like this thing's on steroids, right? It's 300,000 people come to this thing. There were easily 40, 50 things on every hour simultaneously. It was sort of like a mind expansion <laughs> event, right? It's still going. I'm going back down again tomorrow because we have a booth at the expo. So there's a parallel event, which is the global expo that runs in parallel with all of the, the speechifying and the presentations. And so when I talk about having your mind blown, one of the things about being amongst that august sort of group of, of 40 people selected out of the over 700 is that they really have to be extraordinary technologies. And there were technologies there that, frankly, were, I'll use the word again, you know, extraordinary. And you're getting an early window into what you see, into what's going to happen in a few years. So these things are active right now, but you can see how they are going to be able to have significant impact. So, you know, in my category, there was technology that pretty convincingly made an enormous impact on arthritis, just kind of cured people. <laughs> and all of these have been peer-reviewed, and so they're verifiable. A technology which I saw also in another category, which was in the health category, that had to do with giving you up to five days advance warning of a heart condition, right, or a heart attack. Again, all verifiable. So these sort of things are just kind of unbelievable and uh, will make a gigantic difference to the way we live our ordinary lives. And then on top of all of that, you've got all of the other performative elements of the show. You know, you've got um, first release movies, you've got comedians, you've got actors and agitators and activists. So it's a phenomenally good time for the heart and the soul. It'll be uh, amazing what they make of it in Sydney, but I'm certainly looking forward to it. So I'm going to tell you that as part of my extensive research for this interview, I went and had a look at your LinkedIn page, obviously. Now, you've founded three companies. Evercase is one, but Zenova and, and Susan, I might get you to, to touch on those. But your formal training, if you like, is in a bog standard arts degree. So... I've looked at your career and you've bounced around in a bunch of quite, you well, very technical roles in a bunch of different industries. So just talk me through the career progression. How do you end up where you are? Look, I mean, you know, it's easy to look back, right? I think the through line was innovation. I started in, uh, would you believe, human rights and actually really before that in youth affairs. And, uh, you know, I think if you succeed in anything, it's about doing something differently, right? That, that's a key to success and looking for the differentiation point, looking for the innovation point, not being prepared to accept the way things are now, but asking, you know, and this sounds so corny almost, you know, but asking how can we do these things differently in order to be able to get a different and better result. So that was always the case through my early career. And I think the other answer to that, how do you make a progression through these things is that when someone asks you, you say yes. So, for example, I was working at Human Rights and Youth Affairs. I then managed to get a role working in the federal government as a chief of staff working for the then Minister for Ministers for Higher Education and uh, Youth Affairs and Employment Services and Social Security, all those four things. 
in the Keating and Hawke government. And then um, from there, I went to work at the state level in a bunch of different portfolios, including water and agriculture and others. So those give you an incredible exposure to a breadth of people and ideas and policy. And I think that really set me up to be able to then sort of define interest and feel like I had a sense of capability if I was asked to do something in any of those spaces and then some. So, And then it also has to do with the people you meet. You meet people and you share uh, capability and confidence and understanding of each other and that leads you to be being asked to do other roles. So that's in fact how I wound up at ICANN, which is this arcane organisation that runs the domain name system for the internet. So it's based, not many people know this, but every day that you reach out to someone and connect with them as a unique individual on the internet, it's because of the policies and stability that that organisation produces to make the internet operate. And yet it's this arcane little institute that makes policy decisions around how that functions. And I'll say one more thing before I shut up about it. The other really scary thing is that a lot of the security and stability of the internet is managed by this incredible team of people who are often volunteering. <laughs> so, so you could do, James, you could do a whole podcast on this. It is a little-known and fascinating, uh, the fact that this thing's managing the global economy, essentially. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I want to move on because you've had a lot to say about just the structure of innovation policy, and you've had some ideas. Last year, you wrote a paper for us, for our Innovation Papers project, talking about your conception of a national innovation network. And I just wanted to kind of quickly step through that. The innovation ecosystem, for want of a better term, whether you're talking the federal government programs and then the state government programs overlaid on them, there's actually a lot going on. There's lots of overlap. Overlap isn't necessarily a bad thing in some areas. So if we're talking about a national innovation network, what exactly do you want to see in place? You want to see a, a single national agency that manages that overlap? What are we talking about? Yeah, look, it comes off my experience at co-founding one of my first companies, which was called Zenova. So Zenova was essentially an outsourced innovation business, and it would redefine problems and then put it out to very smart people who were cross-disciplinary. So I still do the odd bit of innovation consulting. And whenever a company says, we've got this problem and we don't need the problem redefined, we've been working on it for 10 years and we can't get an answer though, can you find an answer? You know the first place to start is redefining the problem because that's why they've been beating their head against the wall. And the answer is often, I used to say, it's, you know, the exception as opposed to the rule. I think it's now the rule rather than the exception. The answer and the solution is often found outside of the industry that they look, right? So an example of this would be persistently looking for a solution around metallurgy from a metallurgist and you discover that, in fact, there's a technology outside of metallurgy that you never knew existed in audiology. I won't go into the detail around that because it's a whole 10-minute spiel. But the point is multidisciplinary approaches to solving problems. We don't systematize this. What we rely on it to happen by happenstance. And we should be saying, okay, we need a system. Invention is far too important to leave to happenstance. And what we do is we sort of fund silos. We fund siloed work. And so we say, well, we want a new technology in 
and then you know fill in the dots what that technology is. We don't get a multidisciplinary approach to finding solutions to problems, and that's what I mean by we need a big innovation network where large thinkers, big thinkers, can come and take an interdisciplinary approach, and they get rewarded not by being paid a salary, but they get a share of the upside of this. That's a much bigger way to bring big minds and motivated minds to the table to solve really hairy problems. A little bit conscious of time, so I'm going to skip along, but I do want to ask you this. One problem that has been very well defined over decades has been the, certainly not the inability of Australians to commercialise their research. We have done that successfully in areas and in pockets, but we are much better researchers than we are commercialisers, I guess, is a way to put it. So there is a problem that has been defined. How do we fix that? You've just done a project taking research out of the University of Hawaii. You just pitched to South by Southwest. What are the nuts and bolts of this problem and how would you fix it? You know, look, people always, we're always chasing the lights of Silicon Valley, the tail lights, right? We've got to stop doing that. However, if you look at the success of that, we sort of go, oh, it's something to do with the fact that we combined universities and commercialisers in one place. Sure, that was helpful. What really started it? was the government, right? We forget this. The government said, we're going to set a goal and the goal is to go to the moon. It's the moonshot thing that we talk about all the time. And, you know, this is not some harking back to a former time. It's simply a matter of saying, we, the government, are setting a broad goal and we're prepared to support that broad goal with cash. And the rest, you guys figure out. <laughs> so it's it's sort of like, that's what I think we really need to focus on in Australia to do better commercialisation. We need to set a broad goal. We need to say, what do we think are the things that Australia will benefit from and can do better than most others? And, you know, I've often thought, and I say this in my paper, in your innovation papers, as one idea, one of the things that Australia is always and remains, you know, having a deficit on in the worldview is distance. So why don't we set a goal to focus on distance and time-related challenges. You know, Elon Musk posed this a few years back in Adelaide, right, when he said it will be possible to travel anywhere in the world in four hours. Okay, that's one idea. I'm not proposing it as the idea, but why aren't we focusing on holographics so we can be in a place instantly? This could form a big national goal for us that we say we're going to go after and fund. And that will bring, I think, a lot of commercial interest globally because we'll be the only ones focusing on that space. All right, that's interesting. I want to uh, finish up with this. I'll just pose this question to you. It's kind of fascinating and very hilarious that Australians at one point used to complain about, oh, we don't have a burning platform, so we don't have to work as hard as other people because the sun, <laughs> the sun always shines and the beaches are always great. <laughs> well, We've just had a massive announcement about a, you know, a massive defence investment. We've had lots of features running in mainstream media, you know, scaring up our relationships with largest trading partners. But let's leave the politics aside for a minute, but let's call it a burning platform. Now, this submarine deal ties into it a whole bunch of advanced capabilities that the defence forces are wanting to accelerate. So AI, quantum anything automated, all this kind of remote automation stuff. So I'm sort of interested, like that is definitely a national mission. So how do you take a national mission like that that is very specifically driven by defence, but how do you take those 
dual-use technologies, and we know that a lot of those are robotics, remote automation, artificial intelligence, quantum, have applications across the commercial space just as the defence space. What's the model for accelerating the defence mission but being able to extract commercial value? Yeah, I remember speaking at the very early days around the square kilometre array at a commercialisation conference for that. And it's to be very conscious of the fact that while the goal is around a defence goal, there's going to be all of these opportunities for commercialisation in the non-military industrial complex world. To enter this process while the primary goal is the one of defence, enter it with a very conscious view that there will be opportunities, and it comes to this multidisciplinary approach, right, again, there will be opportunities that will be identified on the way through for technologies that serve the primary purpose that can be commercialised in other spaces. And so we've seen that, let's jump back to our moonshot thing again, right, we saw that in the moonshot, all sorts of technologies that came from that that went on to create whole industries, semiconductors, whole industries were created out of this single goal. So I think whilst we might have different views, not me and you, all of us have different views about politics or might have different reflections on the politics of this, there's no doubt in my mind that the commercial opportunities that will arise for Australia out of this will be enormous. There always is when there is a military-industrial complex cause. That's not me cheering on war or, or uh, you know, weapons of mass destruction, but it is me saying you always get benefit from that government-directed investment. All right, Paul Levins, co-founder at Evercase. Thank you very much for joining us today. Enjoy the rest of South by Southwest and we will speak again. Thanks, James. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Commercial Disco Podcast. Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And please visit our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our reporting on tech, innovation and public policy. You can also follow us on social media to ask us any questions or to suggest a guest for the show. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you a great week ahead.